Inarguably, one of the most recognizable buildings in Chicago is the Sears Tower. Sure, it was renamed Willis Tower in 2009, but for many of a certain age, it will always be the Sears Tower. But what about the first Sears Tower, the one built in the early 1900s, some four and a half miles due west of the one everyone knows? Today we're talking about the original Sears Tower. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. One weekend every year during October, the Chicago Architecture Center hosts Open House Chicago, offering free access to city buildings, of architectural, cultural, and historical significance. A few friends and I were fortunate enough to visit several of the 100-plus sites available this year, and one that really jumped out at me was the original Sears Tower. Now, I realize Sears is not the retail juggernaut it once was, and I'm certainly not going to go into their misfortunes. This is really all about their early days. A little backstory on Sears. Richard Sears started out selling watches in Minnesota in 1886. One year later, Sears moved his watch business to Chicago and placed a classified ad for a watch repairman in the Chicago Daily News. Indiana-born Alva C. Roebuck, cool name, answered the ad and their partnership began. A few years later, Sears sold his watch company for a profit of $72,000. That's a little more than $2.1 million in today's money. After a brief retirement, Richard Sears and Alva Roebuck, both still in their 20s, reformed their partnership, eventually calling the new venture Sears Roebuck & Company. Now, their initial appeal was to rural farmers in America— Thanks to volume buying and rail line shipping, they were able to get goods to remote farmers quickly and at a better price than previous suppliers. Business boomed. Their appeal to farmers and those living in rural areas who wished to buy necessities through mail order catalogs grew quickly. Sales of the company topped $400,000 in 1893. That's a little more than $12.1 million in today's money. Two years later, it was nearly double that, and by 1900, it was $10 million. That's close to $327 million in today's money. The 322-page 1894 Sears catalog not only featured items to make farm living easier, but also added sewing machines, sporting goods, and bicycles. The 1895 catalog grew to 532 pages and added new items such as shoes, women's garments, wagons, furniture, stoves, icebox refrigerators, uh, musical instruments, saddles, firearms, buggies, baby carriages, and glassware. You get the idea. It was also in 1895 Alva Roebuck left the company, although Richard Sears kept the name. While Sears lost his original partner, a new addition by the name of Julius Rosenwald brought new clarity to the ever-expanding Sears, Roebuck, and company. Rosenwald most certainly deserves his own episode. After all, he was a philanthropist who championed Chicago cultural efforts like the Museum of Science and Industry, but that will have to wait. 
Sears began to expand so quickly that it no longer made sense to rent five- and six-story buildings as well as additional warehouses around Chicago. What they needed was their own headquarters, and boy, howdy, that is what they got. The place for this new cluster of buildings? Chicago's West Side. Chicago's West Side neighborhood known as North Lawndale was once part of Cicero Township before Chicago annexed the area in the mid-1800s. After the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, many city dwellers headed west to land untouched by flames, especially since homes and buildings being erected in North Lawndale were advertised as being made of fireproof brick. As more homes were built in the area, more industries popped up nearby, including the McCormick Reaper Works and later the Western Union Electric Plant, built just west in Cicero in 1903. Neither of those operations could compare to the vast Sears headquarters planned. The architecture firm of Nimmons and Fellows, which sounds like an English comedy act, was commissioned to design the new Sears plant on the 40-plus acres of land, and ground was broken on the new Sears headquarters in January of 1905 on Homan Avenue north of 12th Street, later renamed Roosevelt Road. It would be made up of four buildings, the Sears Tower, the mail order facility, the administration building, and the powerhouse. Sears Westside headquarters would eventually grow to 55 acres. To complete this project, 7,000 men were hired, 60 freight cars containing building materials were used each day. It is estimated that 23 million bricks and almost 15 million feet of lumber were utilized. By October of 1905, the mail order plant was complete, and in January of 1906, all Sears operations moved to the new Westside headquarters. When the new Sears headquarters building that handled manufacturing and handling was completed, it contained more than 3 million square feet of space and was thought to be the largest commercial building in the world. The original Sears Tower at 250 feet and 14 stories was the tallest building outside of downtown. The nine-story building that connected to the tower spanned over a quarter mile and contained over $8 million worth of inventory. That's just shy of a quarter billion dollars in today's money. I mean, I've seen people refer to this as the Amazon of its day, and yeah, I have to agree. The one-story powerhouse across the street to the east of the tower provided all heat and cooling for the complex and was where a mile-long system of concrete tunnels originated. Within those tunnels, merchandise, mail, and other necessities could be transported. Based on the concrete construction of the tunnels and that they were underground, they could also keep Sears operating in case of, you know, another catastrophic Chicago fire. According to sources, the tunnels had nearly 100 miles of pipe, 4,000 miles of copper wire, and 10 miles of heating and ventilation ducts. 
Because Sears was essentially a city within a city, they even had their own private fire department made up of 600 employee volunteers, which ran daily fire drills. Sears even had its own independent water supply and a 60,000 outlet sprinkler system to help safeguard the buildings, workers, and merchandise. In the Sears Millwork and Building Material Department, full-size living rooms, dining rooms, bedrooms, and more were built to showcase the Sears offerings way before IKEA and others started doing this. From 1909 to 1912, Sears even got into the auto business, introducing the Sears Motor Buggy. In 1914, the administration building had an additional three floors added. By the mid-1920s, the number of people working at the Sears Westside Complex was nearly 20,000. That's double the count from less than 15 years before. Pressurized tubes, kind of like the ones banks used to use in their drive throughs sent communications, including orders, in cartridges through the compound, allowing orders to be processed the same day, often within hours. Now to cope with the between 1,500 to 3,000 pounds of mail received every day, that's roughly 90,000 to 180,000 letters, the mail opening department included a machine that stamped the envelopes with the date and time the envelope was received and slit the top of the envelope at a rate of 450 per minute to make it easier for the clerks to sort the contents. Some employee perks at the Westside Sears, a privately owned and operated library in the administration building, which also had a room where employees could listen to records. Sears also had a reciprocal relationship with the Chicago Public Library so that employees wouldn't need to go elsewhere to return public library books. Their health department was run like a small hospital with numerous doctors and nurses on hand. There was also a dentist office on site for employees. One of the other perks for employees was the Sunken Garden, just north of the administration building. This beautiful park offered employees a respite from the hectic workday at Sears. Athletic facilities, including a clubhouse, tennis courts, and the Sears Department of the YMCA were added in the early 1920s. Events such as annual track and field competitions and company baseball games were held to promote after-work socialization to keep morale high among employees. Those athletic fields were later raised and turned into a parking lot to support Sears' first retail store, which opened in February of 1925 in the Merchandise Building. The store included an optical shop and a soda fountain. Another great Sears development in order to reach additional rural homes, they started their own radio station in 1924, broadcasting from the 11th floor of the original Sears Tower with radio towers in Crete, Illinois. The call letters for the new radio station reflected Sears' standing as the world's largest store and are still in use today in Chicago's WLS Radio. One of the cool parts of the recent Open House Chicago event was seeing the renovated 14th floor of the original Sears Tower. Back in the day, it was used for special functions and events involving visiting dignitaries. 
It provides view of the surrounding neighborhoods and downtown from all directions. In 1927, Sears developed the Craftsman brand of tools, enlisting other manufacturers to produce the tools based on Sears' designs. Also in 1927, Sears began selling Kenmore washing machines and in 1932 sold the first Kenmore vacuum cleaner. In 1931, Sears got into the insurance business, forming a new company called the Allstate Corporation, which, believe it or not, was named after an automobile tire that had been sold in the Sears catalog since 1926. Sears had a stake in that business until 1993. Allstate is now a fully publicly owned company. For those of us of a certain age who grew up in the Chicago area, when the holiday catalogs from Sears, Montgomery Ward, and JCPenney arrived in the mail, there was a scramble to go through and put together a holiday wish list. At least it was that way in my house. The first Sears Christmas catalog came out in 1933. The Sears Wish Book, as it would later be called, Ceased publication in 2011, although Sears brought it back once more in 2017, although as a slightly shorter version. At one point, 22,000 Sears employees worked at the West Side headquarters. During the 1940s, many of the items in the Sears catalog were pulled during World War II rationing efforts. At the height of World War II, women made up 75% of the Sears workforce. Also in the 1940s, Sears began adding to their growing number of retail locations by building large stores in the suburbs. The neighborhood around Sears began to change in the 1950s and 1960s. In January of 1966, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stayed in a third-floor walk-up apartment at 1550 South Hamlin, a little more than a mile from the Sears headquarters, to highlight the area's horrible living conditions. One newspaper claimed that although the apartment had been painted before King moved in, it was, quote, very dismal, end quote. Two months later, Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley announced a program in which 50 city inspectors would assess 15,000 structures with three or more dwellings in North Lawndale and the east and west Garfield Park communities, directed at eliminating unfit buildings, fire hazards, and rodents. The inspections were to be completed within 60 days. When asked if Dr. King's recent efforts in that area had anything to do with the program, Mayor Daley responded, quote, we have been doing much code enforcement and placing many buildings in receivership long before Dr. King arrived in Chicago, end quote. Daly also reiterated a prediction he made that Chicago would be rid of slums by 1967. King's experience in North Lawndale helped inform his campaign against discriminatory housing practices nationwide, which helped create the Fair Housing Act. I read a few stories that attributed the nearby West Side riots of the 1960s, particularly the ones in April of 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., 
that left much of the area in shambles as the impetus for Sears moving their operations. Whether those stories are speculative or based in fact, Sears did announce in 1969 they were constructing a new headquarters, eventually moving their operations to their new 110-story building in downtown Chicago in 1974. The loss of such a major company and the thousands of jobs that were part of it left significant unemployment issues and disinvestment in North Lawndale. Crime and poverty, long an issue in the area, increased steadily. The West Side Distribution Facility at that point rarely used closed in 1987 and the 3.3 million square foot building was demolished in the early 1990s. Minimal operations at the powerhouse continued until 2004 when it was fully decommissioned. As for that powerhouse, in a great example of repurposing a building, it was announced in 2007 that after a $45 million restoration, a charter high school based on the successful Henry Ford Academy in Dearborn, Michigan, would open in the space as Powerhouse High School. According to a press release, I found the restoration, quote, blends historic preservation and cutting-edge sustainable technologies, Original building features were retained to preserve a connection to the building's past. A geothermal heating and cooling system and other energy efficiency measures make the building a candidate for the highest green building certification. End quote. The restoration received the Project of the Year Award in 2009 from the Landmarks Illinois Dryhouse Preservation Awards. This was to be a charter high school with some serious backing. The Ford Motor Company pledged $1.25 million, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation would kick in $400,000. The expected opening of August 2008 was pushed back, finally opening in fall of 2009. The high school would share space with the Charles Shaw Technology and Learning Center. In 2012, a new school began operating in the powerhouse building, DRW College Prep, part of the noble network of charter schools. For you movie fans, George Clooney and Matt Damon filmed a scene for the film Ocean's 12 at the powerhouse in 2004. And in 2005, Emma Thompson filmed a night scene for Stranger Than Fiction in front of the old tower. The former Sears Tower on Homan sat vacant for more than 40 years, staring over the neighborhood around it. Finally, there were summer showed renewed interest in the area, referred to as Homan Square, the former site of the original Sears headquarters. Chicago City Council announced in March of 2015 that the former headquarters of Sears Roebuck & Company was approved as an official City of Chicago landmark district, including the Sunken Gardens. In November of 2015, then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel, 24th Ward Alderman Michael Scott Jr., and community leaders were on hand at the original Sears Tower to announce its reopening. Renamed Nichols Tower for John D. and Alexandra C. Nichols, who helped fund the building's substantial renovation, the goal was for the tower to become a community hub for an economic resurgence in the area and offer space to nonprofits. 
In an interview with WTTW's Jay Shevsky, John Nichols said of the building, quote, It wasn't exactly safe. The stairways were the only way up. The elevators didn't work, and every floor had its own disaster. But when I finally got up here to the top and saw the view that we have of the city, which is unique, I said this has got to be developed. This is an important part of this neighborhood. After a gut rehab, the place has been returned to much of its former glory. One of the other buildings that was once home to the Sears catalog printing facility on the west side that had sat vacant for more than 40 years was renovated in 2017 by a nonprofit called Mercy Housing Lakefront. Located near South Spalding Avenue and West Arlington Street, the $65 million redevelopment includes 66 apartments set aside for Chicago Housing Authority residents. The remaining 115 one through four bedroom apartments are income restricted, meaning they are not available to those making over a certain amount of money. Being a renovated production facility has its advantages. Many of the units have 16 to 18 foot ceilings and bright large windows. There is a community room, laundry rooms on each floor, a computer center, and even an exercise room. It would seem this place has pretty strong appeal. According to the Mercy Housing website, the waitlist is currently closed. There is also a group working to restore the sunken gardens to its former glory. The original Sears Tower is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Sears has indeed had a rough go of things in the retail landscape as of late, but just remember... At one time, they were the go-to retailer for millions of Americans, and all of that started here in Chicago, the greatest city in the world. For listening to today's episode about the original Sears Tower. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various items related to this episode's subject if you'd like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny! He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.